This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello, and welcome back. On last week's episode, we heard from fitness expert Tracy Mallett and Fox News medical contributor Dr. Nicole Sapphire on the importance of taking care of our health from the inside out. In that conversation, I was struck by Tracy's thoughts on why we exercise. She emphasized that while working out is good for improving our strength and cardiovascular health, exercise also improves our ability to be more present, manage stress, and maintain a positive outlook. And that is no doubt true. This week's guests are incredible people who give their all to causes around the world and are always willing to use their time to help others. On my trips to Africa, I've been reminded how fortunate we are to be in our situation, living in freedom, educated, rewarded for hard work, capable of traveling every couple of years to do a little part to help people who are living in dire poverty. It has helped me to get that perspective I need. It reminds me to live with gratitude and not with negativity. Dr. Mark Schreim is O'Brien Chair of Global Surgery at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and lecturer in global health and social medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Schreim's work focuses on surgical delivery in low and middle income countries and his focus is on the intersection of health, impoverishment, and inequity. Dr. Schreim regularly volunteers whatever time he has left over to Mercy Ships and other nonprofits, and he's an American Ninja Warrior. Mark, tell me about where we find you today and why we find you there today. So today I am the Chair of Global Surgery at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, in Dublin. Why we find me here today is a very long story uh, (laughs) that involves uh, basically me starting out never wanting to be a doctor and then ending up on a hospital ship in West Africa and completely changing my life around to do exactly this, to work in the field of uh, providing surgery and uh, surgical care and surgical infrastructure to patients that can't get it otherwise. So that's how we met through Mercy Ships, which we'll talk a lot about. But why don't you share with us the that experience that changed the course of your life? Sure. So I never, as I said, I, I never wanted to be a doctor. Growing up, I wanted to be a linguist. Uh, I wanted to. I sort of I read these books of people who would disappear into the jungles of Papua New Guinea and create the the writing system for you know languages that had never been written. And that's that's what I as a teenager would dream about doing. Um, But I am the firstborn son of an immigrant family. So really, I had three choices. It was doctor, lawyer, or failure. Uh, So I went to to medical school and um, really expectedly just did not like medical school, tried to quit med school all the time. 
ended up not quitting med school, ended up going into residency, getting all my training and um, throughout the entire process, really just not enjoying what I was doing and always hoping for, for something else, something to sort of save me from this path. After I was done with my training, this was in 2007, 2008, uh, I took a year off. I finished one medical fellowship. I was going back to a second medical fellowship, but I took a year off in between the two and flew to Liberia, which is a country on the west coast of Africa, working with an organization called Mercy Ships, which, which as you said, we'll talk about in just a second. Um, but briefly, Mercy Ships, basically, you can tell from the name, is a bunch of hospital ships. Um, and I got onto this hospital ship, docked off the coast of Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia. And I remember walking uh, down the steps of this hospital ship onto the actual hospital ward itself and taking a right-hand turn into the uh, maxillofacial, the head and neck tumor ward, which is what I had been training to do. And I remember being hit with this, almost this like road to Damascus moment where it just sort of hit me after 15 years of training in something that I absolutely hated. It hit me that, oh my God, this is what I've actually been training to do and I didn't even know it. And that really kind of altered the course of my life. I went back, I finished my training, I did all the things, but but that one moment um, really kind of changed the direction of where the rest of my life, I hope, will go. Mm. What is it about the uh, the Mercy Ships experience that has kept you going back to do that, um, even while you have an amazing career and personal life? Yeah, you know, it is the part of my year. So at this point, I... COVID has changed it, but previously I was spending uh, about two to three months uh, for over the course of a year, over two different trips uh, on the ship. And as somebody who works in public health and health policy in global health uh, and researches all this sort of stuff, uh, this time that I actually spend on the ship with the patients, hearing their stories, um, seeing the, you know, the tumors and, and them healing from the tumors, it's the part of my year that really grounds me. It reminds me why I do all the other stuff uh, that I do. Um, and to be fair, I mean, there's, you know, sur- surgeons are needed everywhere in the world, but there are certain places in the world where the provision of surgery is a lot more difficult to get. And I want to be part of trying to you know, drop in the ocean, trying to fix that. And so those are the two things, just being able to be with the patients and hear their stories and also uh, being able to deliver a little bit of surgery in places where it's otherwise less accessible. That's what keeps me going back. One of the things I wanted to do in this podcast was to try to share some ideas for young people that are getting out there or maybe people who maybe aren't so young and are thinking about either a career change or trying to find a way to find a better work-life balance. And to me service to others is a part of that and that it helps you find the balance, even if it means it still keeps you very busy. Can you talk about the role of service in your life and how you think about it? I am 100% on board with what you just said. Uh, Gary Parker is the chief medical officer on one of the Mercy ships and is a bit of a life mentor uh, for me. And one of his rules of, of living is um, to, to keep your Keep your heart toward the poor is the way he says it. Uh, and I think that's 100% true. Uh, the, the, I think the easiest way to stagnate is to continue in our sort of irascibly self-centered lives. 
And the easiest way to find purpose is to start turning your heart toward the poor and defining the poor however it works for you. Um, for me, it works as surgical patients in West Africa, but that's just my story. Um, broadly, service to others, I really think, is the way that we find purpose in life. When you mentioned Dr. Gary Parker, I've described him as the person that I've seen in my lifetime that is the most, to me, like Jesus must have been. And one time when we were in Congo and there was, um, a, 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 what do you call those days, the assessment day or the... Yeah, screening. We, we call them now assessment days. They were screening days. Back screening day, yeah. And I remember this 14-year-old girl came through. And 14 is the worst age. I don't care where you are in the world. It is just a hard age. 13, 14. Nobody wants to do those years again. She had um, one of the tumors that you're talking about. It was on her face and, you know, um, quite disfiguring. And they had come to see if she could um, be surgically uh, repaired or you know, have, get some support there. And I watched you and Dr. Parker treat her with such gentleness and kindness, but also not with, with pity, but with purpose and love and I'll never forget that moment. And I, I think that was really what solidified that, you know, that day, that in particular, that moment is when it solidified my commitment to helping Mercy Ships. Hmm. You've never told me that story. That's amazing to hear. I'm really glad. I don't know if you would, uh, I mean, you've seen so many, I'm sure you, you've, I don't know if you would remember that moment, but it was very touching. And, you know, she walked in with a downcast look and she's irritated and she didn't want to be there. And then she walked out with a piece of paper that said, you get to come back. And yeah. um, there's also another story, if you wouldn't mind telling the story of the other little boy from that day. Um, was it Emmanuel? It was Emmanuel. I can tell the story, but can I just say one, one sure. thing to, to this? Um, you know, a lot of these patients that we see, I, I work in the head and neck, but it, you know, so I see the head and neck tumors, but bowed legs, all the, you know, cleft lips, all those things are very disfiguring to use the word that you use, absolutely very disfiguring. And, and they, they basically take these patients away from the table of humanity. When we, when in general, we're not thinking about it, when we look at them, we don't see a person, we see bowed legs or we're confronted by this big disfiguring tumor. And the person is behind that. And you don't, unless you're um, conscious about it, you don't see that. And I think one of the most beautiful things about the ship is that you actually see the transformation in people's eyes. And as you said, sort of the downcast look, you see the transformation even before the tumor is off. Mm -hmm. You see the transformation once people look them in the eye and say, you know, for your entire life, for your 14 years, nobody has seen you. They've seen your tumor. I choose to see you. And that to me is just beautiful. That's what I love about the ship. Um, the other patient that you mentioned, Emmanuel, uh, he's one of my favorite, favorite stories. So he was, I believe he was four, three or four at the time. Um, so a young kid who had a, a benign mass growing on the roof of his mouth. Um, and his mother and father had been to everywhere to try to get this benign mass uh, treated. They went to a local doctor in, in their city and they were told that it was malaria. They were given malaria pills. Those didn't help. They went to a bigger hospital in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the bigger Congo. They went to the bigger hospital in the capital there. 
the doctors there told them, yes, there's a tumor on your son's, on the roof of your son's mouth, but there's nothing we can do about it. So they basically sent him home and these benign tumors, they sound benign and they are in that they're not cancerous, but they continue to grow. And in a three or four year old boy's mouth, you don't have to grow very far before you start obstructing the airway. So that's what happened to him. He started obstructing his airways, having difficulty breathing, difficulty eating, basically kind of, to put not to find a point on it, wasting and suffocating away. His dad worked in the port um, and they had heard that this hospital ship was coming in. So his parents went and basically bought a calendar and started, you know, Xing out the days until the day the ship would get there. And once the ship got there and the screening day happened, um, they took... uh, they took Emmanuel to, to the screening day and he was, you know, because, because he couldn't breathe, because he was breathing so loudly trying to get air around that tumor, he was basically passed over the heads of, of other people on the line to get to the front of the line. And uh, yeah, we saw him, we screened him. We were able to take the, the tumor out of his palate, able to reconstruct his palate so he could swallow and, and speak normally. And he did great. He, he went home a few days later and, um, Last I saw of him was maybe six months afterwards, and he was doing doing great. So I wanted to ask you about your approach to asking your employer. At the time, I believe it was Harvard. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. But you you negotiate your contract in a way that allows you to do the work that they need you to do, but that gives you that time that you are asking for to be able to go in and visit the ship and, and do your work there. And I wonder um, how you approached your boss about that. And if there's any advice for people who um, want to have an opportunity to give back, I'll give you an, an example. Um, another young woman I met on the ship, she worked at Children's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. And she was given six weeks every year. And she came sort of like late January through February every year to be able to volunteer on the ship. And I asked her um, what what that was like for the employer. Um, and she said, well, they don't have a choice. You know, they could have me for you know, 10 months of the year or they are not, but I'm going to do this work. But it's not always easy for people to ask for, but I do think that, and we're talking to a mostly American audience, mm-hmm. people listening to this are um, probably – ambitious and they want to do good work, but they also want to give back. And how do you do that while also trying to you know, make a living? Yeah, no, that's such a great question, Dana. I think I'm privileged right now that this has become so much of my career that it's a lot easier for me to say, look, if you're hiring me, you're hiring me. Plus, you know, I'm going to be gone for three months out of the year. Uh, and I've built my career around this. It was a lot harder when I was first starting out. Uh, I got a piece of advice when I was negotiating my first uh, job out of training, my first uh, real doctor job. And I give this piece of advice to anybody coming out of their training, whether it's out of college or wherever you're, you're negotiating for your first job. Um, the person said to me, pick three things that are non-negotiable for you. Uh, it doesn't matter what those three, th- those three things are. It doesn't have to be salary. Just pick three things that are non-negotiable for you and then be willing to negotiate everything else. And for me, being able to spend at that point, I only negotiated four weeks in, but being able to spend time on the ship doing this because it's the centering part of my year, that was a non-negotiable for me. And there were jobs that were not interested uh, in somebody who was going to go away uh, four weeks out of the year. Uh, everything else, that, you know, salary was not one of my top three 
things that are non-negotiable. The size of the office or even having an office was non-negotiable. And I ended up never having an office for like the first 10 years of my career. Um, but this one was super important to me. The other thing that I would say is once you get that job, um, you know, there's, there's, you get viewed a little bit as sort of a flight risk. Oh, you know, she's spending six weeks out of the year working on a ship in Africa. She's not really fully committed to the job that we have for her here in, in, um, you know, in Arizona or wherever, when you're not doing your global health work or whatever it is that you do, you've got to be the best employee that you can be at the job that you're at. Like you can't be viewed as a slacker um, because already there's that, there's going to be that veneer of they're running away, you know, every year. So you've really got to work your best to be the best, whatever it is that you're doing while you're here as well. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Absolutely. It does. Do you have any advice for managers of, especially this younger generation, um, for how they can find ways for their uh, employees to give back or you know, maybe the importance of this factor of your workplace also being a place that you feel good about? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. I think, you know, the, the, I don't know who it was that you're speaking of, but, but her, her approach, you know, they don't have a choice. They mm-hmm. either have me for 10 months or they don't. I think managers need to realize that too. Um, clearly the, the era of the lifetime employee is gone. Um, but people in, you know, in our generation, people in the generation below us really care about doing good in the world. Um, and I think those of us who are managers now have to recognize that this is an integral part of the life of our employees. And if we really want to be sort of holistic managers and we really want to care for our employees, we need to care for that too. And so that's going to mean breaking away from some of the rigid norms that we used to have, sort of the nine to five norm. I mean, can we, can you hire two people for the same job and have them work six months at a time? All those sorts of things. Can we innovate around the way we even view the workplace Mm -hmm. that will allow people to do that? You have a book coming out in January called Solving for Why, which I'm just kicking myself because that's the best title. And I, I credit myself with coming up with some pretty good book titles, but that one is fantastic. Thank you. And I know that you cover a lot of ground in the book, but you also talk about um, global surgery and you want this to be a book that you know, has an impact and leaves its mark. Tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, no, the book comes out in January, as you said, January 2022. Uh, it's, it, it's part memoir, um, part sort of that story that I told in three minutes of how I got to where I was takes a few chapters. Uh, it's also part global surgery. What is the issue behind surgical access uh, around the world? And it's also part kind of lessons that I've learned on this really weird, non-traditional path that I've been, uh, been walking on, uh, my hope from this book is similar to what you said. My hope is that this book uh, speaks to people either coming right out of you know training or college or grad school and starting their careers, or people in the middle of their careers who are looking for a shift. The the focus of this book really is that uh, we, especially as Americans, we tend to make why subservient to what and how. Um, and I did it forever when I was in med school and really wanted to quit med school. Um, I started to just sort of pretend that becoming a doctor in wherever 
Boston was was truly what I wanted to do with my life because that was the path that I happened to be on. We make the we we elevate the path that we are on to the top, and we stop thinking about why we necessarily are on this path. And really, what I hope this book does is it gets people to flip that hierarchy and to start thinking, why do I want to live? And then designing the what and the how around that why. You you sound like a modern philosopher that we all need. <laughs> That's terrifying. I know. I think it's great. I think it's great. And I, of course, my husband and I are obviously very fond of you um, and admire you for so many reasons. One thing that people listening might not realize is that you also had this amazing personal fitness quest. I did. And, or do uh, or don't do or did? Well, are we? Is it past tense? <laughs> I don't know for past. It's hard tense, to keep so. that up. It is hard to keep that up. I also, back in January, did an absolute number on my knee That's and tore right. like three ligaments and broke the bone. Right. So I'm recovering from it right now. I've only just gotten off crutches. Um, so I think it's still a do. I don't think it's past tense yet. I think a lot of my friends and family want it to be past tense. Well, we should uh, tell anyway, people what we're talking yes, about. Yes, exactly. What we're talking <laughs> about is, uh, so back in 2016, I made the absolutely silly decision that you make at two o'clock in the morning when you're watching YouTube videos of applying for American Ninja Warrior, uh, which if you're not familiar with it is a, is a show in the U S um, where contestants basically run on this massive obstacle course. Uh, yeah. I applied to be on the show. I was selected to join the filming trained for three weeks, went and filmed and did okay. And then basically an obsession was born and I've been doing that for the five years since. I think it's fantastic. Do your students, do they just love your accent? You know, no, it's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of Americans in Dublin and specifically at the Royal College. Uh, it's a very international university. 25% of the students are from North America. So the American accent is not at all exotic. Are students uh, in Ireland and America quite similar since you've taught both? I would say so. They really are. Um, yeah, it is, I mean, I'm teaching medical students, so medical students really kind of have a goal of becoming doctors uh, and very similar aspirations, very similar goals. Any advice for them in terms of coming out of this pandemic, the resiliency that it took to get through it, um, but any advice that you would pass on to them now as they get back going down the road? Yes. Uh, I mean... The, the advice is solve for why, but really I think this pandemic has given us an opportunity to step back and do that. Uh, you, for the beginning parts of the pandemic uh, in the medical field, it was just like, keep your head down, keep showing up and do the thing you need to do because we got to get through this pandemic. But now that we're coming out of it, I really think it's time to step back and to think, you know, why am I in medical school? Why am I in grad school? What do I want this to accomplish for me? Uh, cheesy way of looking at it, but, you know, what is my gravestone going to say? Um, and figure that out first before just sort of staying on the path that you're on. And last question. Will we meet this year on Mercy Ships? Is this happening? Do you think it's possible? I would love to. Um, they haven't announced when they're going to put the ship back into service because, as you know, COVID and ships don't mix very well. Um, but the minute they put it back into service, the minute they give me dates, I will let you know I'm going to be there. And I would love to come and meet you there. I'll bring Peter, and um, hopefully he'll have no contraband this time, which <laughs> is perfect. a story we're not going to tell on the podcast, but it's a good one for when we have Guinness one day in the future. Mark Schreim, excited for your book. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Dana. Wait right there. We'll have more next. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. 
At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. I have some reminders in my bathroom that I've affixed to my mirror above my sink that help keep me grounded. They remind me to listen more than I talk, speak gently when I do, and to learn to flow with the river rather than always pushing against it. Most days I read all three a few times while brushing my teeth. Gotta be productive. Francine Lafrac is the president of the Francine A. Lafrac Foundation and the Same Sky Foundation Fund. She is a very gifted social entrepreneur, women's rights advocate, and philanthropist who focuses on women's empowerment through economic opportunity, financial literacy, and support. Francine, let's start by telling people a little bit about your career path, which I think is super interesting. Oh, well, that's exciting to talk about. So I started um, by being in the art world, and I realized that I really wanted to be in show business. So I went out to Hollywood and um, went and developed movies, and I was a complete failure because I thought, oh, all you need are good ideas. And I didn't really understand that it was all about the implementation. Then I had an opportunity to produce Broadway shows and I had very big success in Broadway, went back to Hollywood, was a success and was able to produce uh, social issue films, but then hit another wall when I wanted to do a movie about the genocide in Rwanda and Hotel Rwanda got released while we were in pre-production. So I couldn't get the movie made. And I decided that I had to go to Rwanda to see if I could help the women who were most affected by the genocide. And those were the ones that were raped, who were HIV and had no means to support themselves and were just living to die. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea, kind of like you, that Africa would have this unbelievable impact on my life and, and a transformative impact because the women that I met there were so full of joy and reconciliation and hope and cared about their children And it was so shocking to me because I'd come back to the Upper East Side and people would be complaining about the most mundane things, thing like I didn't get a good seat at a dinner party. And I had those women in Rwanda in my heart to think about what they survived and their attitude and really understand joy. And it was like a mental reset for me. Is there any story in particular that um, sticks in your mind, uh, a woman that you met or an experience that you had that 
was kind of like, when you think back, that was one of the moments that you got it. God, there were so many, but I'll I'll just tell you about Clementine. Clementine um, had terrible HIV. And when she started working, um, she went back to her doctor and he said, what are you doing, Clementine? I don't understand. Your HIV numbers are much better. What are you doing? She said, I have a job. I'm working. And Clementine taught herself how to read and write. She had much more security in the neighborhood. And she had a, she gave birth to a non-HIV baby. <laughs> I mean, I could tell you stories about, you know, how these women touched me and how I saw them come alive with the idea of using their hands and making jewelry and how each bead represented hope and whether it was Bridget or Speciosa. And these women lived through being gang raped and things that you can't even imagine, but they were so able to have a a positive attitude and it really touched my heart. And then when you returned to the States, what did you decide to do? Well, I decided to start a jewelry company. Doesn't everybody decide to do that? (laughs) And everyone said to me, but you're giving up Hollywood? You're giving up show business? What are you doing? You're starting a jewelry company 7,000 miles away. Are you out of your mind? But my husband, like your husband, was supportive. And he said, go for it. So I started this jewelry company with the idea that talent is everywhere, but opportunity isn't. And that the women were very talented with their hands. And if I could give them a job, I could give them hope. I could give them a life and they could change their families and their communities and their kids could sleep on mattresses and they'd have more security in their neighborhoods. And that's what I decided to do. And I have no idea that it would be a success. Of course, when we went on your show and 40 seconds later, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of pieces of jewelry sold. Imagine if we had a whole minute. It was mm-hmm. unbelievable. It was like um, Santa's workshop trying to fill those orders. But I have to say, Dana, you made such an impact on people when you put the, you know, you showed the jewelry for 40 seconds. It was really quite extraordinary. And uh, I'm very, very grateful that you have such a loud voice and such an amazing footprint on the world. It's interesting. Um, thank you for saying that. And I will give you, I'll be giving you another, I'll, I'll be giving you a minute. We'll have to do that again. Um, and I want to talk about Same Sky because we haven't um, talked about the the name of the organization and this jewelry. It's not just, it's not just like your trinket jewelry. This is absolutely gorgeous jewelry. But I wanted to maybe take a moment here just to say, you know, what you just said about how you decided to give back after an experience. Um, I wanted to talk about in this podcast series about, you know, having a full life, your whole life, that there is work and there is your personal life. And part of that has to be, I think, in order to have success, it's service in some way. And it, it might be um, a, a volunteer, it might be pr- donating money, but also it might be you know, using your voice if you have an opportunity to try to lift others up. And that is what helps make for a good work-life balance, in my mind. And I wondered how you think about that. I think 
I agree with you 100%, but we all need a sense of purpose. We all need to know our value, and it helps you build your own self-confidence by having that sense of purpose. And I think we all need to get quiet and try to understand what our talent is and how can we share our talent with other people and what whatever it is. Maybe you're good at reading or math or language, whatever it is, to find a way to share it. It's the most rewarding thing. And it's something that you, I always look at myself as the bank. And I make deposits in the bank when I can, you know, be connected to other people and do what I do best. I feel like my bank account is full. My bank account would be empty if I didn't have that. And it's just such a wonderful way to look at it for me. So tell us about Same Sky. Um, this, is the, this is the business that you started um, and how it works, who you look for in order to um, help you grow this um, organization. Well, before that, I want you to know those 40 seconds helped over 300 women and 50 young girls studying STEM in Rwanda. Mm. Those 40 seconds had such an impact. But um, same sky started with the idea that we're all under the same sky. We see the same stars and moon, and women have the same dream. And I wanted to see if I could create a, um, a trade initiative that was purposeful so that I was giving women jobs, but then I was asking my friends to buy the jewelry and have the jewelry act as a ribbon to the women because we're all under the same sky. So that was the idea to create a, a company of purpose. And um, I, you know, I really, we started out with four women and we ended up um, with over 200 women and we made the jewelry and um, we had so much, it's beautiful jewelry and every bead represents hope, but it's also something I realized, which is I can't only make jewelry and sell it to all my friends and other people. I have to find a way to train the women to run their own businesses so we started to train the, uh, we did business trainings in Rwanda and we trained over a thousand women, which with their families would impact many tens of thousands of people. And now the women have their own businesses making um, baskets and bags and selling them to Target and all over. And you cannot believe how beautiful the work is. But with the jewelry idea, I went and I couldn't uh, wrap my hands around the fact that I was only working in Africa when the need in America was so great. So I started working with formerly incarcerated women in New Jersey, women that had gotten out of Hudson County Jail. And so I would deliver these beautiful, high-quality materials to the women in New Jersey who would work around a table because there was this sisterhood 
that I saw in Rwanda, that I saw in New Jersey, where they would share problems, where they would build each other's confidence, where they would get out of bad relationships and help with their children. And I saw the same impact that I saw in Rwanda. But what was interesting is that the women counted every bead because people said to me, why would you leave such quality material with women who just got out of prison? They took care of the beads and valued the beads as if it was so precious to them. And they counted every single one of them. It was quite amazing. Mm. Um, and I love to tell the story about one of the women, if you'll just Yes, indulge. please, please. I love these stories. But there was a woman named Barbara. And I said to all the women, I said, we're going to the Newport Mall for Christmas and we're going to sell the jewelry at the mall. And it's going to be very exciting and we'll have a kiosk. And Barbara said, I have a problem with it. I said, what's your problem? She said, I was arrested six times at that mall for shoplifting. Mm. I said, Barbara, you paid your debt to society. You, you could feel just like any other person. Let's do this. So we go to the mall and she's, turns out she's an unbelievable salesperson. And she says to me, I want to be in charge of security. And I say, sure, Barbara. But meanwhile, a man walks by and she says to him, sir, if you don't buy this bracelet, your wife will never forgive you. Then a woman walks by and says, and she says, I can make a, a bracelet in any color you want. And I'm watching Barbara, what a salesperson. But then another woman comes and starts touching the jewelry and touching the jewelry. And Barbara was sure that she was going to shoplift and I had to pull her back. Mm. But she was so fabulous, Barbara. And um, she actually started to um, manage the women. And she didn't realize that she had a talent for management. And she started taking courses and she could manage the women. It was really quite extraordinary. But it goes to that idea that talent is everywhere, but opportunity isn't. Anyway, I watched the women in New Jersey um, develop and grow and get in touch with their children. And because buying a birthday card was like a huge thing for them and feeling that having finances was just so important to their mental and physical well-being. And I watched them. And then I started working at the Women in Need Homeless Shelter. And quite frankly, I was shocked because these women were not only marginalized women. There was a doctor there. There were women that had been battered. There were so many different socioeconomic levels and highly educated people. I realized the common thread here is financial fluency and how important it is for wellness. And we started this computer training program. So to give the women an opportunity to get out of the homeless shelter, to get housing, to get a job. And we've had 11 graduations now from the homeless shelter and it's really been quite extraordinary. But all of this led me to start this program and we're building this building at Barnard College which is the center for well-being. For young people that might be listening to this if they're either just graduating or um, I have a lot of people sort of in that late 20s 30s time frame of their life um, any sort of 
advice for them as they make these transitions about finding a way to utilize their ambition to achieve their career goals, as well as to have this work-life balance and this um, idea of service. Like as they're busy raising children or thinking about raising children, um, I know you know there's this question: can can people have it all? And, and maybe you can't have it all at once, but any tips of the trade that you have found over the years? Well, the first thing I would do is read your book because, <laughs> I mean, I got so much out of it and I continue to pick it up and women of all ages will get some, so much out of it. I mean, I love what you say. If you're not comfortable, you're not growing. You know, if you're not, if you're feeling too comfortable, you're not growing and to get comfortable being uncomfortable and really to zero in on what your problem is and don't try to, you know, spoon the ocean and take on every problem. And when you talk about being peaceful and being in the driver's seat and choosing to be happy and also things like keeping your network current. I mean, I thought your book and sitting up straight, (laughs) I thought your book had so much um, value. It really was so valuable. But in terms of work-life balance, I really think that we need to get quiet and listen to our hearts. And our hearts tell us where to go and what to do. But you have to get very quiet and allow your heart to help you get centered and feeling that sense of self-confidence. I feel like women get alone with their thoughts and they lose themselves. And I always say, like, the mind is a dangerous place to wander alone. Mm. You have to stay in your lane, and you have to not get lost in your thoughts. And you have to take the plunge, and you have to be brave, and you have to just hold your nose and jump in. Mm. And just, I mean, look at what you did when you were the press secretary. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I love the story in your book when you talked about going to your boss and letting him speak first and letting him finish what he's saying before you gave your whole piece. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah. That's a story about how I went in to resign from the white house as the deputy press secretary. And Ed Gillespie said, I need to talk to you too. Do you mind if I go first? And I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. (laughs) And then he said, the president would like to make you the press secretary on Friday. And I was like, Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. And he did not know that I was planning to resign until several years later when I wrote, and the good news is, and he called me and he said, I can't believe it. You never told me. And like, well, I knew that my life had changed so dramatically in that moment. And one of the things I've always wanted to do is just to help, um, as much as I can, pass it on to the next generation. And all I ask of them is that they pass it on as well. And, and that's how we can keep this circle growing. Um, a proposal, the next time you're going to go to Rwanda, might I tag along and help tell the story? Oh, my God, would I love that? That would just be the greatest. I mean, oh, my God, the yeah. fun we Let's do have. it. And the love. Let me tell you something about Rwanda. So obviously that story, um, that, I'm sorry, not just a story, but the the, uh, I'm thinking of a book, and then, and then the, na- the name of that book is escaping me. It's a, it was a young woman who went through it. She tells her story in a... In very, the bathroom? Yes. Yeah, I know, th- I know exactly who you mean. I've met her many times. Yeah, she's an amazing... She works at the UN now, right? I believe so. But she, um, that story was so, um, meant so much to me. And I had an opportunity to go with the Bushes to Africa in February of 2008. Now, it was seven days... Five countries, seven days, a 
just, we were on a tear. So much was happening. In the meantime, Kosovo is becoming a country, and I'm on all these different time frames in terms of I had to work Washington, D.C. hours and uh, the Rwanda or African hours where we were. And we flew from Tanzania to Rwanda, and the president was going to be participating in a reconciliation ceremony with the president, Paul Kagame. And I was so excited. But the day before, we had been in Arusha, Tanzania, and it was super hot. And um, the advance team had said, by the way, there are not a lot of bathroom facilities on on this day. So for some reason in my mind, I make this terrible decision and I hardly drink anything the whole day. And it's super hot. And then that night, I I, I never felt so sick before. I didn't know I had a migraine. I had, it was like my first migraine. And I remember crawling along the floor in the hallway outside to the president's doctor's um, room because he used to like leave that room a little open on any sort of foreign trip so you could knock on the door. He comes, he's like, what is happening to you? Anyway, we fly to Rwanda. I'm so excited to be able to go, but I'm actually feeling very sick. And the doctor says, Dana, you're going to have to stay on the plane. It's like, what? No, I, I, I want to go to the thing. And they're like, you have to because they put in two, two IV bags of fluid in, into me so that I wouldn't uh, stay sick. And I watched from the little tiny airplane window this whole ceremony that went on there in Rwanda, and I've promised myself I will go back for so many reasons. This would be a great reason because we could combine forces. I can help tell the story, and you can show me it through your eyes. Well, I'm so proud. I mean, what a story. You know, I talk so much about dehydration, and that's what <laughs> you terrible, terrible habit. I'm so proud of the women. I'm so proud of the students that I work with that study STEM. I'm so proud to um, see the families and see so many of them graduate college that we've been working with. Uh, you know, I'm, it would be a great honor to go with you. Okay, and so the- I'm putting it out there so that everybody knows that we're making this public commitment to each other. Francine, uh, thank you so much. Everyone should check out Same Sky. And if you're um, one of our male listeners here and you're looking for a great gift to buy for your wife or your girlfriend, your mom, your sister, whoever it might be, I'm telling you, you cannot go wrong. It is absolutely gorgeous jewelry. Absolutely gorgeous. And now you know how it is made with hope and love. Francine, thank you so much. You're amazing. Next week, we talk career decision-making with former chief of staff to President George H.W. Bush, Jean Becker. Jean talks about the decision she made to leave her career in journalism to work for the first family plus a behind-the-scenes look at the post-presidential life of the 41st president. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.